If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Boy, this headline says it all. Tone deaf. Uh, Jugmeet Singh slams rapporteur Johnston for not stepping down. Uh, this out of CTV. Uh, Global also got this story. Everybody's covering this. NDP leader Jugmeet Singh has slammed foreign interference special rapporteur David Johnson's refusal to heed the House of Commons call for him to step down as tone deaf. NDP leader Jugmeet Singh calls special rapporteur David Johnson tone deaf for not heeding the call of the House of Commons and due to the perception of bias, step down and walk away from his involvement with the investigation into election interference by the Chinese Communist Party. It says, quote, with all due respect, the service of Mr. Johnson and his public uh, previous public service, I believe that this response, his response to the vote on our motion is tone deaf, saying said in a statement today. By the way, Jagmeet Singh will be on the show tomorrow and explain, I'm sure, more of this. Uh, Wednesday, the majority of MPs from all opposition parties passed a motion calling for Johnston to step aside after he recommended against a public inquiry in light of a of serious questions raised about the mandate and its conclusion. Within an hour of the nine, uh, non-binding motion being passed, Johnson issued a statement asserting uh, his independence to continue Continue his work. Uh, he said that while he's deep, he deeply respects the right of the House of Commons to express its opinion about my work going forward. His mandate came from the government. Doesn't listen to the people, listens to Justin Trudeau. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, whose party pres- uh, presented the motion calling for Johnson to resign and for the government to forge ahead with a public inquiry rather than the former governor general's plans for a public hearing, he said Thursday would have expected a more thoughtful approach and respect for the will of the House of Commons from the governor general. Jugmeet Singh goes on to say, I am very disappointed with the lack of understanding of the importance of such a vote calling for for him to step aside and uh, the rapidity with which he responded to this vote, Singh said. Uh, in other words, not happy that um, David Johnston didn't even think about it. He just hammered out a letter and said, nope, I'm going forward. Uh, going forward, I expect it will be very difficult for Mr. Johnson. That from Jugmeet Singh. Going forward, I expect, he says, it will be very difficult from uh, uh, for Mr. Johnston. Uh, and again, he said from the outset, that there uh, is just too much um, uh, perception of bias here uh, with what is going on. It has nothing to do with David Johnston's past reputation, which, of course, uh, the government continually brings up over and over again. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, not, it's not to do with his past experience. It's the perception of bias here and the fact that before being a special rapporteur, he was with the Trudeau Foundation, which, of course, uh, accepted donations from the Chinese Communist Party or those at least uh, related to it. So uh, fascinating to see what happens. Jugmeet Singh has also said that he will not force an election on this. So really, uh, at the end of the day, as I said yesterday, 
Uh, it appears uh, Justin Trudeau isn't going to do anything. He just plows ahead, no matter what everybody says or thinks or or or, or such. And therefore, it sort of falls on uh, Jugmeet Singh's shoulders to rein this in, to get a hold of it, since he is the other party that is supporting the Liberals, or is the party that is supporting the Liberals uh, in this minority government. So, again, uh, we've certainly heard the language of Jugmeet Singh calling David David Johnston tone deaf for not heeding the call of the House of Commons. So if this isn't enough to forge through with an election, what is? What is enough considering uh, how disappointed Jugmeet Singh is? So sooner or later, he is going to have to make the call because I don't believe the prime minister is going to make the call. And clearly, David Johnston's not going to do it uh, either. So this continues to fester. Uh, people continue to ask questions for which there have been no answers. And and around and around and around and around we go. And Justin Trudeau just doesn't seem to be interested in calling a public inquiry. Uh, many people have said, including the past head of CSIS, that this can easily be done without endangering the lives of anybody or revealing any deep, dark, top, uh, top secrets. And again, at the end of the day, all we want to know is what the prime minister knew and when he knew it about alleged Chinese Communist Party interference in the last not one but two elections. And many saying... Uh, or I shouldn't say that, a few, uh, including Jugmeet Singh. Well, well, I don't feel confident calling an election while things are like this. Well, when are things not like this? When is the Chinese Communist Party not throttling Canada or any other country? When are they not trying to influence? And my goodness, they've influenced in the last two elections. So <laughs> what do you do? Wait until there is no influence? I don't think there'll be another election. So it'll be fascinating to see how all of this moves forward. And in case you haven't noticed, a heat warning in effect uh, for the next couple of days. It looks like things uh, are sitting around the 30-degree mark for the hammer until about Saturday when temperatures are uh, supposed to drop a little bit down to the uh, low 20s, about 23 the high for Saturday. But today and Friday, 30 degrees is what we're looking at. And Hamilton's medical officer of health has issued a heat warning for the next two days with the expectation of temperatures hitting close or not above 30 or above 30 degrees. Environment Canada issued, issued its own heat alert for the Hamilton and Niagara region through a forecast that calls for a two-day heat event putting maximum temperatures up to 31 until late Friday afternoon. To talk more about all of this and what the city is doing and what this means once temperatures get this high, Matthew Lawson is with us, manager health hazards and vector-borne diseases, Hamilton Public Health Services, and with us now. Matthew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am Scott. Thank you much for uh, very much for having me. Uh, hope you're staying cool. So far, so good. Actually, uh, our air conditioner uh, broke yesterday, and uh, thank goodness we got a call in soon enough, and they were here to fix it today. So I'm very excited about that. But yeah, you're trying to keep everybody cool. What does the city do? What happens when a one of these alerts are issued? Uh, well, the city of Hamilton, so the criteria for us issuing the heat warning is um, it's called when two or more consecutive days with daytime highs greater than or equal to 31 degrees centigrade and nighttime lows are still greater than or equal to 20 degrees Celsius, so not mm. cooling off so much at night. 
um, either those conditions or when the humidex is at 40 or greater, um, we issue the heat warning. And so when a heat warning is issued, the city does offer uh, some services, some additional services and or spaces for people to go to re get reprieve from the heat, including um, outdoor pools and waiting pools. There is free admission to pools when uh, we are in a heat warning. Um, also, um, recreation centers across City of Hamilton are open and available during their customer hours, customer service hours, and the public are welcome to attend those facilities uh, if they need to find a an environment that is air conditioned to stay cool in. As well, we also have um, our partners in the Hamilton Public Library. Um, providing service uh, or providing space uh, for people to cool off with their 22 Hamilton Public Library branches that are open. And they're part of our, uh, our partnership in response to the community to provide cooling options. Do many people take advantage, uh, advantage of these services, Matthew? Do you see an uptake uh, in, the, in and around these areas, whether it's the pools or in rec facilities, when we are experiencing this kind of weather? There is uptake of these services. Um, we'd like to know more about that. So we're going to be working with our partners to hopefully um, do a little bit more uh, surveying, if you will, to find out what type of, uh, if people are specifically visiting these destinations purposely uh, to take refuge from the, from the cool, or if it just so happens, you know, they might be going to the library anyway, but spending time there. Um, but they are, uh, we do get to, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people that do take advantage as well. Um, our colleagues in the recreation department have let us know about the free swims. They're much appreciated by the public as well. Uh, is it earlier this year that you're issuing such warnings, Matthew? It seems summer's not even started and we're, we're into heat, heat alerts. Is this earlier this year? Uh, it's not necessarily earlier, Scott. Um, it might seem early. The first heat event of the year always is a little bit more jarring than the others because we're mm -hmm. not used to it. We're shifting from a season, uh, from the spring season into the more heat-centric summer season. Um, you know, I think it was in 2022 we had our first uh, alert announce or our first heat warning still in the month of May, late May. So it's right around this time of year that we start to see uh, the temperatures climb up and that we usually usually have our first announced heat warning is right around this time of the year. Uh, you, it was interesting you said because it's the first one people aren't quite accustomed to it, almost like the first snowfall of the season. Uh, it sort of takes us by surprise. That's it. Uh, you're right about that. And the body too, like our bodies are not as... Um, are not acclimated to consistent warm weather either with that first event. So it can seem a little bit more intense. Um, and as the summer goes on, our body can get a little bit more used to it and it might not seem as, as, um, as intense as the first episode, but it's still uh, during all of the, uh, the heat events and especially if they're prolonged in their, um, in their persistence, meaning like if this event happens to go beyond the two days into a three or four day event, the longer a heat event goes, the more important it is, is that you take some of those steps, like making sure that you're hydrated, getting to an air conditioned place, um, not necessarily exercising and taking strenuous uh, activity, those types of tips to stay cool. And um, uh, it's important that you maintain those uh, practices to stay healthy. Uh, how concerned are you about this event, Matthew? Uh, it looks like two days by the weekend. It sh by the weekend, it should be over, which is a good sign. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's what we're hearing from our um, our colleagues at Environment Canada who help it here in Ontario. We now have a we now have a um, a heat warning information system where he, uh, Environment Canada is a partner, and they help us do those regional forecasts to determine what area of the province is going to be reaching these temperatures. And so, uh, you know, this trigger that's used as part of the heat warning information system was determined with uh, research completed by both Health Canada, the Ontario Ministry of Health, to um, to determine what is the temperature for how long that we're going to start to see people actually having signs and symptoms of heat-related illness. But the forecast that we're hearing from Environment Canada, luckily, we do get some reprieve. It looks like uh, probably isn't expected to go past Friday for this one event anyway. Matthew Lawson with us, manager, health hazards and vector-borne diseases, Hamilton Public Health Services. Uh, the Hamilton Medical Officer of Health issued a heat warning for the next couple of days. A reminder, the pools and rec centers are open for you to use uh, free of charge. Matthew, thank you for the time. Good luck with this one. Thank you very much, Scott, and uh, for letting me uh, come in and share some information about how to stay cool. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. President Zelensky of Ukraine pressing his case uh, today for Ukraine to be part of the NATO military alliance and said he was confident a coalition of countries would form to provide Kiev with Western fighter jets and Patriot missile defense systems. The Ukrainian leader joined a meeting of European leaders in Moldova seeking to bolster Western solidarity and keep up the pressure for concrete support ahead of his country expected counter-offensive against the Russian invasion. To say more on all of this, Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and here now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Good to talk to you, Scott. Elliot, I remember when this uh, invasion first happened way back when, Zelensky was quite uh, evident. He was quite uh, uh, telling in how he really had no interest in joining NATO, that this was not a reason for the invasion, and it wasn't a priority for him. Now that has changed. Why Why the, the, the change now, and, and where is the journey for uh, Ukraine to be a part of NATO? Yes. Well, the change is because Russia invaded the just to go back a little bit. The the constitution of the newly independent state of Ukraine in 1991 said it would be neutral. And Mr. Putin said, well, we have to invade and occupy Ukraine. And uh, it's not a real country. And we're going to, you know, incorporate it because we can't have NATO coming into our um, into our country itself. And we therefore have to make Ukraine disappear. And at that point, uh, they did take over, remember, in 2014, Crimea and much of the Donbass, and now the reinvasion, continuing invasion in February. So what Zelensky is saying is we were neutral. We were not a NATO member. We weren't asking to be a NATO member. You invaded us anyway. We were invaded anyway. So now the lesson is we have to belong to NATO, and the quicker, the better. Is this all about jets? No, it's much more than jets. It's uh, about creating a formal architecture of security for uh, not just uh, Ukraine, but much broader than Ukraine. Uh, there's, um, there's a number of countries that are not members of either NATO or the EU, and that's what's going on now. There's actually two meetings. No, this is really, as uh, Ukraine keeps saying, a, a way to stop Russia from changing the geopolitics of the entire region by successfully invading and occupying and disappearing Ukraine, then they will be pressing forward. They'll be in the heart of Europe and the Baltic states. 
Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland, for that matter, would be perhaps next on the target. And of course, Moldova, which is, uh, we should probably talk about this a bit in more detail, but Moldova is not a member of NATO, and they are next door. Uh, the uh, Belarus, of course, is probably already gone. No, this is much more than about jets. This is about saying that, well, just uh, two quick things. One is that we are talking about two meetings simultaneously, and it's easy to confuse the two. NATO foreign ministers are meeting right now uh, in Oslo in Norway, but right now simultaneously, there's something called the European political community, which is meeting in Moldova, right next to Ukraine, next to Russia, for that matter. Uh, and they, there's this is a brand new organization, just two years old, but it has all of the EU members, plus a whole number of other countries, not members of the EU, about 44 members all in all, uh, all of Europe, basically, both EU and non-EU members are meeting, and they are meeting in Moldova specifically to say, look, <laughs> we have a continent-wide security. And at that meeting, this is where Zelensky once again shows his genius, Scott. He said, there should be no hot war or frozen conflict on our continent. Now, he was speaking about all of Europe. And he added, where there are no security guarantees there were only war guarantees. So this is all about creating security guarantees for Ukraine, and Ukraine will do the fighting on behalf of everybody else, but they need, of course, those jets. Uh, there is a move, but the primary move here is let's create absolute security guarantees for Ukraine and other states against an invasion by an imperial power. Uh, as you mentioned many times, uh, obviously Putin uh, was not in favor of NATO being on his borders and such. Uh, obviously, we've seen what's happening with Ukraine and now they, their request to be a part of it. What about these other countries like Moldova? Will they start jumping on board well, and asking for some protection as well? well it's, it, there's a long protocol. Uh, it takes a long time to become a member, typically, of NATO, unless you've already been interacting with them. Remember, Sweden and Finland both want to change their historic central identity as non-aligned and neutral states. They turned on a dime and said, it's time to actually get into NATO, but they hmm. had been working with NATO all along. They've got coordinating committees. One of the interesting uh, things to keep an eye on is at the upcoming meeting, this is all leading up to a summit in July 11th and 12th in Lithuania of NATO. And at that point, uh, will Sweden be there? Will they be let in? Because Turkey is blocking the membership, as is Hungary. And that's one thing to watch. But the other thing to keep an eye on in, in, in terms of this conversation is President Zelensky apparently is going to be there. They are going to be um, setting up a formal apparatus, a Ukraine-NATO council. All of this is to say that this is not just about the individual personalities involved right now. There will be an ongoing effort to create a security architecture for all of the member states and those states that um, NATO would like to throw a cover over but can't quite admit, which is where they are right now with Ukraine. Uh, we've talked uh, since this all began way back when uh, seasonal offensive spring, winter, what have you. We're hearing now of Ukraine getting ready to launch its counter offensive uh, against Russia. What is that all about? And, and why would you let this information out and possibly prepare Russia? Well, one of the things that's very worrying about it is uh, it's been well advertised all along that as soon as 
<laughs> General Winter and General Mudd <laughs> permitted an yeah. counteroffensive, that there would be a counteroffensive, that uh, this was the basis for Ukraine being supplied increasingly sophisticated in uh, hardware, military hardware and ammunition, preparation for a counteroffensive based on their previous success, remember, in shockingly turning the tables on Russia, uh, having stopped them in their one-week war, then uh, in, in the attempt to take over Donbass, reversing parts of that. But Russia has really dug in. And my concern now is that, and you can hear this, uh, people like President Macron and some Republicans in, you know, in Congress saying, well, if this counteroffensive doesn't happen, and if it isn't 100% effective, we're, we are not going to be providing uh, uh, any more armaments. We're, we're, Ukraine will prove that it can't stand up to Russia, so we have to change our strategy and not arming them, press them into giving up some of their territory and uh, make peace with Russia. Just give up Crimea, give up all of the Donbass, further dismember the state. So there's a lot of concern, and to bring this back full circle to where we started today, there's a lot of concern that too much emphasis is being given to a counteroffensive, which is anticipated. A lot of equipment is there. But the main message coming out of both of the meetings we're talking about, the NATO foreign ministers and then coming up to NATO and this new, uh, this new organization, this European political community is, Scott, there will be no war fatigue that there's a unity against uh, illegal aggression to change borders, and that no matter what happens, the Russians aren't going to win by outlasting the patience of those who are engaged. All of these meetings are one way or another saying one thing and one thing only. Uh, we are unified and we will be there as long as it takes. Elliot Tepper with us, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine and Ukraine's ambition to now join NATO. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always good to talk to you, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Soon, each individual cigarette will come with its own warning. They talked about this a long time ago, but then this stuff has kind of died out, uh, no pun intended. Uh, I, uh, the cigarette warnings used to be a big deal at one point, and then um, it sort of fell out of favor. More people vaping, I don't know, or more people smoking. Uh, now each individual cigarette has its own or will have its own uh, warning. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business at Master University, and is here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. So why is this happening now? It seems we haven't talked about this issue in a long time. Um, I'm I'm guessing that that smoking of cigarettes is on the decline. Is it increasing? Why are we doing this now? It's not increasing, no. So, Scott, first, some historical context. If I go way back to the 1960s, when I was just a lad, about half of Canadians smoked, about 50% of Canadians smoked, it was actually higher among men than women. And uh, part of that argument was a lot of men were working manual labor type jobs. Having a cigarette gave you a chance to have a little break, catch your, catch your thoughts together and move from there. Now, since that time, of course, we've learned about how bad cigarette smoking is. So governments have worked hard to try to reduce those rates. And today, the cigarette smoking rate in Canada is around 13%. So that's a very dramatic a decrease from... 50% down just 13%, but it's stalled. In other words, the progress that was being made 
started to just not happen anymore, that we got stuck at 13 and it hasn't really moved for the better part of four or five years. And so health people are saying, what what can we do to, you know, again, drive this lesson home that cigarettes smoke? Already the packages, I believe it's at least 50% of the package has these kinds of pictures and warning messages on them. It is hard for me to believe that people do not know how dangerous cigarette smoking can be. I, mm. I understand they want to bring the message even closer, putting it on each individual cigarette. I'm just not sure that that's going to make much of a difference. If you've ignored the warning on the package, then I think you're likely going to ignore the warning on the cigarette. But the goal, as was noted in that piece, is to get smoking down to 5% in roughly 10, 12 years. Worthwhile goal, it will have huge implications for our healthcare system. Uh, but for me, I think the question is not so much putting more warnings on the package, but how do we avoid more people starting? In other words, if you've been smoking for 20 or 30 years, we all know how hard it is to give up a habit like that. Um, but what, if we can, what can we do to try to get people to not even start in the first place? And there what concerns me, and I'm speaking to you tonight from uh, Latvia, uh, Riga, Latvia. Uh, what I see on the streets here are not many people smoking, but lots and lots of young people vaping. And I don't have vaping statistics in front of me, but if they are substituting one for the other, it's not clear to me that that's a good result either. It seems as if you talked about you know, most of the people who are in, who are smoking now are well aware of the risks uh, that are there, even if it's the packaging or, or, or previous health knowledge or such. Is this about shaming people? Is this about guilt? Because like you said, they already kind of know. Well, it's, it's another chance to drive the message home. You know, you grab your lighter, you're about to light it up, and there it is staring you in the face. This smoking is going to cause impotence or this smoking is going to cause cancer. It's one more chance to drive the message home. But again, I say if, if you've ignored the messages up to now, it's very easy for you to message uh, to ignore the message on the cigarette. And I think you would also have to be careful with the language you put on the cigarette because as you start to smoke it, uh, depending upon where the message is, you might have half the words. Maybe there will actually be positive messages after you smoke half the cigarette. So you got to be very careful on the wording. I never even thought of that. Uh, but in, in, in true Canadian form, these messages will be in both French and English. Yes, uh, just to make sure that message gets home. Now, here's another interesting wrinkle. Uh, in the Hamilton area, there are lots of people who smoke, but they get their cigarettes for lack of a better term, I'll call it from the black market uh, out of Brantford area, from the Six Nations uh, area. There's a cigarette manufacturing plant there. Mm, sometimes that the people who sell those cigarettes uh, uh, in that area don't ask a lot of questions. Will the native-made cigarettes also contain these warnings? I'm not sure. So, you know, again, people who are really want to smoke, there are ways around this. Uh, someone asked, is adding that, those messages more ink, more whatever, does that make the cigarette more dangerous? No, probably not. I'm 99% certain they're using a, a soybean or soya ink that is not uh, harmful in any way. So it doesn't trade one problem for another. But this is, just shows you, again, when, when you're getting down to these fine points, it's like losing weight. The last five pounds is the hardest to lose. And we've got a lot of the easy fruit off the tree. How do we get it down further? Let me draw you another parallel, Scott. You probably know that eating trans fats are not supposed to be good for you. What if we labeled every nugget at McDonald's that, you know, this has got trans fat in it? I don't know if it does, by the way, but just as an example, every food item, every slice of bread that has trans fat, would that change your behavior? 
my feeling is some people might change, but they might swap something that is equally bad for them. And this is the example I gave you with vaping. People might say, well, then I'm not going to smoke those cigarettes anymore. But hey, that vaping looks kind of fun. Are we trading one problem for another? I only got a few seconds left. Uh, how do the manufacturers feel about this? I mean, um, add any more cost? Uh, how, how do they get around it? Yeah, two things. So, yes, it does add more cost. So, again, they've got to get this printed on the papers before they roll the cigarettes. And so that's an additional burden for them. Uh, but I think many manufacturers also are saying, look, it's a free world. If you just want to ban cigarettes, ban cigarettes. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. a legal product. Why are you making it so difficult for me? And, of course, we know tobacco companies have made millions and millions and millions of dollars over the years selling these products. It is interesting. Government puts these strong warnings on but does stop short of banning them outright. Uh, would that have something to do with the tax revenue they receive? Let me think about that for a second. Yes, I think it would. The same taxes, whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or cigars, uh, all of these things contribute to the government revenue. So they probably don't want to lose it. And yet at the same time, health experts say reduce it. You can again see the conflict of interest that governments have in this matter. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at Groot School of Business at McMaster University. Soon each individual cigarette will come with its own warning. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. The first steps towards development in the lands around Hamilton's airport have been taken. We get a look at what it means for the area and its future in a six to four vote. Uh, in a six, in a six to four vote, Hamilton's planning committee has given initial approval for plans, uh, for a 40,000 square foot warehouse within the airport employment growth district. It's the first phase of a 37 hectare industrial park, which will ultimately include further development and require a widening of Dickinson Road. To talk more about all of this, Mark Tad- Madison is with us, Ward 11 Counselor with the City of Hamilton, and here now. Mark, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I'm doing well. I hope you are as well. So far, so good. A 6-4 to four vote, uh, uh, Mark. Explain that to us, because it would seem like this is a no-brainer. Why would some be against this? Well, the counselors who raised issues, they, they're raising great issues. Um, you know, I supported it um, in principle because, you know, the city's so far along with this process. But, you know, this, the the AEG development, they have so many um, standards. And some of the councillors were feeling that the minimum standards were met when we should be more aspirational. So, you know, sense of place principles, um, just natural history, agricultural concepts um there's what there's some wetlands on the land they 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 thought more could be done um in supporting wildlife um you know things like that they're 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 all great um there there was also questions about what's the eventual build going to look like what's the density of uh jobs going to be per hectare um they had questions about that that were answered but they're again to the minimal standards as opposed to um you know would we much prefer manufacturing as opposed to warehouses, of course, things were, are going to bring in higher paying jobs. Warehouses, are they're telling me things like, you know what, Mark, um, robots operate warehouses. How many people are going to be employed in this place, right? Things like that. So so good points all raised. And I said, and, and, I, and I'm so appreciative that I work with this council because every day they educate me to become a better steward of the environment, even though I am very um green initiated and uh i have all the aspirations but i do you know i did run on the principle that you know we want to bring jobs to the area we want to build out that um aeg district um 
basically the airport employment growth district so that so that we have the jobs and that can support our city. And the city's come so far. Like, you know, we've got the transit routes up there. I want to improve the infrastructure. Um, as this comes, there's going to be other positive things as well, right? So, so you know, it's, it's councillors. I think we've got like a yin-yang relationship here at, on council, and I think we make it work because everybody respectfully listens to each other they've 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 um, changed my perspectives a little bit yes we do need to be more aspirational going forward I definitely want to see um, you know concepts like solar panels built into the designs things like that so you know there's lots and I know that I'm uh, I know I know there's lots more to the issues that I'm probably not covering, but but I, I just want to say that I think there was a great discussion yesterday amongst council, and I think we're all in a better place because of that discussion. Uh, some may debate you out there, Mark, on how uh, great council is working and getting things done, and and you know the majority of the country wants uh, you, you know wants to address and be stewards of the environment, but we also have a massive housing shortage because for years we haven't got anything done. Are these questions actually valid, or is this stalling? You know, Scott, you're going to have to ask me that again. Okay, have you got can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, so um, uh, initially, uh, this is a six to four vote, and, and there were questions from councillors regarding uh, uh, standards and and, mm-hmm. and being stewards for the environment and such. Yeah. Um, but many have accused council, various levels of government of paying too much attention to that because it attracts uh, voters and, and attention, and nothing's getting done, nothing's getting built. So I guess my question is, are these uh, valid questions, are these valid things that we should be looking at, or are these stalling uh, uh, processes? No, I, I, th- I think when you see the vote yesterday, it was 6-4 in favor of building, right? So again, it's like, you know, building with a certain set of standards in, in mind. So, so th- this is not going to stall. Um, we've got the trunk sewer line coming across that's that's being developed, being being built right now, going across all the way from Upper James, going down to 56, so that the the, the sewage and the waste can can come from the airport growth district. So so the city's planning, we're moving forward. It's just, can we have better builds? Can we be more environmentally friendly with our builds? Can we, you know, get the developers to the table to you know think about without without pushing put to put uh, solar panels on the roofs to have possibly green roofs to um, incorporate you know the existing infra- the existing I guess um, environment into it like can can we save a grove of trees if we move the parking lot ten feet or are we just going to mow down the trees so I think those are the challenges that um, some of our council. Uh, and most of our council is is asking the building to, to the building divisions to, to look at and 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 I'm I'm going to be calling on city staff to you know what can we do moving forward to ensure that you know more of these environmental principles are incorporated into our builds but it's not going to stall it this is moving forward the airport growth employment growth district is going to move forward it's going to support the city with with um, and the economy in many different ways with 
going from jobs to improving our transit to improving our transportation networks to getting our uh, trucks off our rural roads and onto highway networks that better connect up with, um, you know, uh, neighboring communities and so forth. Okay. What does this mean for business up in that area? I mean, obviously, as you said, it's an employment area. It's been designed to expand. Uh, is there? What about attracting manufacturing? Well, we've got Amazon up there. Um, we've got Infarm, which is a which, which is a growth. Uh, I guess it's a natural indoor facility that grows uh, vegetation and, and various food products. Um, yeah, manufacturing. You know, we because of where we are in our location, we've got great. We've got the port. We've got the airport. We've got great roads. Um, we've got quick access to the United States to Toronto. And we've and that airport, you know, we do need warehouses. So, so at what point? This is my this is my quest. Can we get more manufacturing? Can we look at more uh, labor intense, I guess, or or, or sorry, mm-hmm. job density? Can we improve that job density? And 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 yeah, there are there are manufacturing um, places coming. There's there's a build on Nebo Road. I'm not at, I'm not at liberty to share it right now, but they're going to be a manufacturing plant. Um, and, and it's, it's probably, I'm saying looking in excess of, uh, 300,000 square feet. So, so that is occurring. Um, I like to see things like maple leaf. I like to see things like, uh, the bimbo bread, like, you know, things where we're having those jobs and it's creating and it's good for the local economy. But again, we are a hub and we're the number one, you know, air carrier, or I guess airport for, for cargo in the, in the country. So I'm just saying it's like, you know, we need to support that as well, but can we do better moving forward? Can we have more, I guess, diversity in our economy? The first steps towards development, the lands around the Hamilton airport have been taken. Mark Tattison with his Ward 11 counselor, City of Hamilton. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Hey, thank you, and, and thanks for having me here. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We remember the Stellantis deal. They were building a battery, EV battery plant in Windsor, and then it all kind of ground to a halt, uh, then saying that the federal liberals weren't living up to the deal that was set, I guess, to balance out what they were giving to places like VW and such companies like VW in order to get them to uh, uh, to do business here as well. Uh, the feds then started leaving, leaning on the province for more money. The province then stepped up and said, yeah, we'll do whatever we need to do. Although we really don't know how much each one is is donating on top of what we had already heard or, or whether this is even confirmed or not. Uh, Stellantis is saying at this point that uh, there's been no official word, yet we're under the understanding that, yeah, it's, it's all systems go. So deal, no deal. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief, Global news and is here now colin thank you for the time i hope you're well i'm doing well scott thanks for having me so colin where are we with this deal no deal well it seems like there is a deal in the making but it hasn't really materialized just yet and that's because i'm not sure whether stellantis has been you know, offered the deal or presented the deal or whether they've said yes or no. Uh, the premier is indicating that, you know, they seem to be close, that they, in his words, are inches away and that he's fairly confident that they'll be able to kind of come to some kind of an agreement on this that would keep Stellantis and all of those jobs and investment here in Ontario. But as of right now, 
Um, it still seems like it's in, up in the air. Uh, we understand that in, uh, as well as an initial injection of money that what the VW deal was was continuing to donate through the production as things continued. Is that still the sticking point here with Stellantis? Well, what Stellantis wanted really was what Volkswagen got. You have to understand that, you know, in the United States, there is um, an act called the Inflation Reduction Act that's offering massive boatloads of incentives uh, to a whole host of companies who set up shop in the United States. Now, that's a federal offer. It's not being matched by the states, um, that, that federal deal. So in Ontario and Canada, it's a little bit different, right? With the Volkswagen deal, the federal government offered some 13 billion dollars in incentives over the next uh 10 years and ontario pitched in another half a billion dollars so that's the deal for vw stellantis only got a billion dollars half from the feds half from ontario and they're looking at this saying well wait a second why would we stay in Ontario? We could literally cut our losses here, move down to the U.S. and get these massive incentives from the federal government. And so they went back to the you know, the the Canadian government and said, where's our $13 billion? So the, the interesting wrinkle here seems to be this dynamic between the Ontario and the federal government. The feds say Ontario has to pick up the slack here and they have to put more into the into this deal. Ontario saying, well, wait a second, this isn't our deal. We didn't negotiate this. You guys negotiated this. So you guys are responsible for sealing the whole thing. And now it seems what they've come to is whatever additional incentives are placed on the table, Ontario, you and me as taxpayers, are going to cover one third of that. So if we if we put that in, in into the uh, you know context of the Stellan- uh, the the VW deal, so VW got thirteen billion dollars from the federal government, um, and that's not all cash. That's a lot of incentives and you know rebates and all of that. If we're putting in one third of thirteen billion, that's like four billion dollars that Ontario could be on the hook. So the devil is in the details, and we have to see what the details are. But you know, Ontario could be putting up significant amounts of cash here to ensure that Stellantis and its investment stays in Ontario. Uh, that being said, Stellantis hasn't mentioned the province, um, but uh, the feds have. So is this because of the difference in the deal between the U.S. and Canada? They're just dealing with feds versus dealing with states. Dealing with feds versus dealing with the province yeah it, it, it might be i mean canada has decided to fight the inflation reduction act toe-to-toe right with the same amount of investments uh, to be able to keep these companies here or attract these companies to canada and ontario the trouble is is obviously in the united states you're talking about the b's versus the tr- uh, the t's you're talking about trillions versus billions right yeah. uh, the financial firepower of the united states far out outweighs whatever Canada can put on the table. And that's why it's instrumental that the provinces kind of help chip in something so it's not all on the federal right. taxpayer base. And that's why, you know, here it seems to be this this relationship between, it's, it's like a tripartite agreement, right? It's between Stellantis, mm. Ontario, and the federal government. In the United States, it would just be the federal government and whatever company is getting those, those rebates. So this is a bit of a trickier negotiation, but the premier says, look, they've been talking nonstop. It seems like they've really been seized with this. The premier said he's been at a call with the prime minister's office, Christian Freeland, the finance minister, his minister of economic development, Vic Fideli and himself. They were on a call this week up until two o'clock in the morning. So they are definitely all hands on deck 
trying to, you know, breach this this time difference with, uh, you know, people who might be in Europe and Asia uh, trying to negotiate this. And at this point, we don't have any clarity, but the premier believes that they're very close. How does this affect future deals, Colin? I mean, obviously, this is post VW deal. They wanted concessions to bring them up. What does this do about future negotiations, do for future negotiations? Well, this is going to be the ultimate question. Ontario and Canada are trying to attract a lot of automakers. You have to understand that, you know, the world is on the cusp of an EV revolution. And that mm-hmm. means, you know, you need companies to build uh, the, the batteries themselves. You need the companies to build the vehicles. You need the companies to build all the supply chain around it. There is a huge amount of money that is somewhere on the table. And Ontario and Canada have decided we want to be players in this global market. But in order to do that, it seems, you know, we've decided as a country, we're going to put a lot of money on the table. So it's easier to get this incentives and this, this investment if you just basically buy these companies and tell them, you know, you come here, we'll give you a lot of uh, a lot of money in addition to some other incentives like our free healthcare system. But this really begs the question, does every company that wants to set up shop in Ontario, do they all get some kind of an incentive? Or is this sweetheart deals for certain companies? And then does it depend on the size of the investment, the size and scale of the company, how many jobs they're going to be employing, how long and and how much um, they're going to add to Ontario and Canada's GDP? There are a lot of unanswered questions here, but in In renegotiating with Stellantis, there are some, including liberals, who worry that Ontario and Canada have now set a new precedent, that if you want to set up shop in Ontario, there could be some kind of a financial uh, sweetener. And if we start offering that to every single company, you can you can see very quickly this can add up and get Mm. very expensive. And it's all born by you and me. Sure, there are spinoff effects like increased taxes more jobs and a lot more for the economy, but we're paying for this ultimately. And, and and we don't know what the bottom line figures are. So there's going to be a lot of questions for sure. Colin DeMello with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief, Global News, talking about the Stellantis deal. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. NASA held its first public meeting on UFOs Wednesday, a year after launching a study into unexplained sightings. And, you know, UFOs... Uh, it basically means an unidentified flying object. Could be that balloon that was flying over the prairies uh, a few months ago. It doesn't necessarily mean little green people that are flying around as extraterrestrials. Let's bring in Dr. Elena High, Director of Allen Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and with us now. Elena, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, doing great. Thanks. So what is the objective of this NASA meeting and the first one of its kind? How come? Well, there there have been other meetings, uh, usually a little more locally. There have been all kinds of different smaller studies that have been done in Canada and the U.S. and in other countries as well. But this is really to kind of bring uh, bring everyone together, I think, and get people on the same page in terms of, uh, this idea about um, having people bring in information that is uh, considered credible. And really, it's all about sort of finding ways to um, 
I suppose, investigate some of the uh, actually interesting, unexplained phenomenon that's out there. Uh, I think the UFO or UAP, I'm not sure which one we're supposed to be using anymore, but <laughs> unidentified anomalous phenomenon, and they've actually included not just sky, but also water and space um, to, to sort of allow uh, a little bit of a wider view into what's going on. And, you know, as you said, there are lots of things that have been reported, um, but getting that information uh, reporting in allows you to actually do science. Um, and that's, I think, something that we would, well, uh, scientists like myself would love to see more of in regards to, um, well, UFOs or UAPs. Some have been critical of this group, saying um, that it detracts from the scientific progress. Some have received some online abuse. Why does this distract or take away from the scientific pro- uh, process, or does it? Well, I, I would say that, from my my opinion, obviously, is that it really doesn't. Because when you're mm-hmm. bringing in more information, more data, and then you're collecting credible information and doing a robust analysis who knows what kinds of cool things you might discover. And, you know, discovering about uh, what is, um, you know, what is needed in order to understand real phenomenon that people are seeing in the sky or, as I say, water and space. Um, And you do get such a chance for discovery. And I think that's really the thing that I I got most out of of this uh, sort of initiative is you have a wonderful chance for discovering potential new insights to physical processes here on Earth in our atmosphere. Um, One thing I I really brought to mind right away is some of the chance discoveries that have happened in science because people took a second look at that quote-unquote weird signal, weird Mm. image, weird thing that came up. And, you know, uh, we say UFO, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, and to, to, you know, do people say UFO, well, there's no such thing as Martians, whereas UFO doesn't necessarily mean an extraterrestrial, does it? Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, understanding the unknown is part of science. And that's really, like, I, again, just my opinion, but it's really the fun part because it's a mystery and you can try to uncover things like those first uh, real-time images of plasma tubes of the Earth's ionosphere, which is one of those um, lucky signals I was telling you about in radio. And the people didn't even know about those until 2015, and somebody followed it up. And they now have images for these awesome tubular structures, literally tubular, in Earth's ionosphere. Um, amazing. <laughs> so cool. Why do you, why do you think that... About it. <laughs> Why do you think that this gets so much, uh, you know, it's, it's obvious people are curious and people are always, have always been interested in UFOs and that sort of thing. But why do you think it comes with such scrutiny? Well, you, you, do, have to, you do have to find ways to validate your data. And that's one of the yeah. things with, um, with observations or data points that occur only once, right? It's very hard to make a correlation or to pin down a cause if you have a data point that's only occurred one time. That said, if you've reported your best information for that data point, 
who knows, maybe other people have found similar things in other places and it's related to some other cool atmospheric phenomenon that's never been imaged before. Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director, Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, NASA, talking about UFOs on Wednesday. Elena, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. And uh, clear skies, everyone. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh slammed foreign interference special rapporteur David Johnston's refusal to heed the House of Commons call for him to step down as tone deaf. Jagmeet Singh uses the phrase tone deaf when speaking of Mr. Johnston. With all due respect to the service of Mr. Johnston and his previous public service, I believe that his response to the vote on our motion is tone Tone deaf. He uh, obviously they passed a motion the other day for him to step aside and reinforcing a public inquiry. Within an hour of this non-binding motion being passed, Johnson Inch issued a statement saying, "While he deeply respects the rights of the House of Commons uh, to express its opinion about his work going forward, his mandate comes from the government." So, uh, with that being said, where do we go from here? Is it just is it uh, Jagmeet Singh that really holds the pin here as opposed to the prime minister let's bring in wayne petrosi professor emeritus political and uh, public administration at toronto metropolitan university and with us now wayne thank you for the time hope you're well i'm well thanks and uh, you're welcome uh wayne pretty strong words from the ndp leader what are your thoughts uh using the phrase tone deaf when referring to david johnston well in a sense i i think uh mr singh was being uh tempered in his remarks. I, I think you could easily conclude from what we've been watching that Mr. Johnson has this sense of self-importance uh, that is really quite remarkable for a non-elected official who's managed to hang around the corridors of Ottawa for the better part of three decades. Uh, he was very uh, complimentary in saying this has nothing to do with the man, uh, but the perception, the great perception of bias here because of the relationship with the Trudeau Foundation and the actual Trudeau family. How does that qualify it, and, and what is the significance of this? Well, I, I, I think generally, I think it's the tempest in a teapot. I, I, I don't suspect Mr. Johnson to be around in a week's time. Uh, I, I do think uh, the, the prime minister will have to feel the necessary to take heed of uh, what the House has done through that motion of uh, non-confidence in, in Mr. Johnson in, in requesting him to step aside. And so, I, you know, I think this will finally be the end uh, of a career that, you know, more cynical people, unlike myself, would think should have ended earlier. Uh, so where is this going? I mean, would we just get a new David Johnston? I mean, and is that, is that going to satisfy the public? That, you know, that's a great question, and, and I think that remains unclear. Uh, there, are out, there are outstanding issues around just how you organize access to the information, what you make public, what, you know, at, at, and how you go about making it public. That, that isn't yet all that clear. 
Uh, Jugmeet Singh has said publicly he won't use this to force an election, which was everybody, which was what everybody I think was waiting for after he he condemned uh, the special rapporteur and 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 reinforced his need for a public inquiry. Is this now up to Jugmeet Singh rather than Justin Trudeau? Is the is the ball in Jugmeet Singh's court as opposed to Ju- uh, Justin Trudeau's? Because at the end of the day, it appears neither David Johnston nor Justin Trudeau is going to react. Well, I, I suspect that, in fact, uh, they will react. And uh, in, in Mr. Singh's case, I, I would agree. It would. I would agree. It would not be wise for him to, if you like, uh, turn this into a, a confidence matter. Yeah. Let's be. Let's work it that through. Even if you then passed a non-confidence motion, that would defeat the government. You'd be into an election, and we would now be hanging around for a great deal of time before we could get back to this question of the interference by the government of the People's Republic of China in Canadian affairs. That would just remain out there hanging and subject to all kinds of conspiracy theories and other kinds of misinformation that have been part and parcel of of, of this issue. You said that you didn't think, Wayne, that uh, David Johnston would last the end of the week. Where is he going? What's your prediction here? I think in, I said within a week. <laughs> I wouldn't say tomorrow. But I think <laughs> within a week he he will decide uh, that you know um, it's pretty clear that no one has confidence in my ability to continue on this file, and I should acknowledge that and essentially go away. But, Wayne, he's already said he won't do that. I mean, an hour after this uh, passed, uh, will he will he step away or will Justin Trudeau ask him to step away? Oh, I think they'll have a conversation. And and I think uh, Mr. Trudeau will indicate his his uh, uh, gratitude for the work he's provided to, to the parliament and the people of Canada. And, but that it's now time to make way for another uh, part of the process to unfold that doesn't involve Mr. Johnson. So, what would that process be? Does that mean a public inquiry or another, the, or much more the same with a new David Johnston? I don't think they'll go back to a special rapporteur. I, I do suspect you may see some behind-the-scenes negotiations over just what might be the next step in terms of if it's going to be an inquiry. Or it, it, what? What? What's its scope? Uh, what are we going to leave out of bounds, so to speak? So that uh, questions can't be directed at for reasons of, of security. So I think there'll be some extended discussions uh, among the parties, and uh, I'm not sure how that will go, or if it'll just peter out of its own. What are your thoughts on how this has been handled to date? Not great. Had not been handled great. Uh, I, I was, uh, while the initial report, fine, it, it gets brought to Parliament, I thought it went off the rails when Parliament indicated through a formal motion that it was no longer had confidence in Mr. Johnson and wanted something different. And instead we got uh, Mr. Johnson almost petulantly uh, saying, I'm staying on. What does this do for David Johnston's career if he does step away? Uh, I think, you know, he, he's been the kind of person doing this kind of political work for far too long. I think his best before date occurred some time ago. 
Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus of Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, the discussion about David Johnston and his role as a special rapporteur continues. Wayne, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, too. I have been talking about this issue forever, and I do not know why we have not focused more on this. The vast majority of Canadians are incredibly concerned about climate change. The vast majority of Canadians want to help solve the, save the planet. Where we disagree is how to go about doing this. Uh, the, the current government constantly throttling down, screwing more, uh, tightening the screws on Canadians when it comes to to uh, fossil fuels and, and taxes and what have you. All of this while Canada admits 1.5% of the world's greenhouse gases. And again, if we were to shut everything off tomorrow, it wouldn't even mount to a hill of beans when it comes to helping the planet and the climate. However, getting the world off of coal, China, India, the United States even, that's the solution. Just as DeFasco said that was the solution, as did the Prime Minister, uh, when they stood up and said that uh, DeFasco is going to switch to electric furnaces. However, until that transition happens, we're going to use clean Canadian cleaner, Canadian liquid natural gas to get us there, reducing emissions by 60% until we get there. The Prime Minister does not see the business case for this, yet he stands in front of DeFasco while they are using that business case. Uh, a fascinating article by Tony uh, Keller, editorial page editor for the Globe and Mail, and the article is, How Big Are Canada's Carbon Emissions Compared to China? We're a rounding error. To talk more about this, the author and editor page editor, editorial page editor, Tony Keller. Tony, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. Great to talk to you today. Tony, uh, thank you so much for writing a column like this. Uh, I think Canadians, the majority of Canadians, are extremely concerned about this, but wondering if we are doing the right thing. Are we barking up the wrong tree here? So, look, it's a complicated issue, and I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree on some of the details. I think there's there's sort of no question that Canada and all the other industrialized countries have got to take really big steps to reduce our carbon emissions. The, yep. the whole planet actually has to do that. The, the yep. problem that I was trying to point out in this article is we are taking steps, but at the same time, you've got some very large developing countries like China and like India that are going in the opposite direction. They are dramatically increasing their carbon emissions every single year by leaps and bounds and that is that is a problem so i'm not arguing from the position of saying oh there's no such thing as global warming don't worry about it i'm saying yep. actually we should worry about it a great deal it's just mm -hmm. that it's sort of like there's one group of countries pulling in one direction and there's another group of countries pulling in entirely the other direction uh, a recent note from the parliamentary budget officer echoed basically what you're saying and and saying that materially there isn't any difference to the environment uh, or the economy by the direction or the trajectory that Canada is taking. Would it not be better if we all focused on ridding uh, the world of the worst polluter, which is coal, and then doing the best we can to uh, to get the world off it? I, again, I use the, the example 
example of DeFasco here in Hamilton, which is a great idea. Um, you know, turning all of those coal-fired furnaces into electric. Um, but when the announcement was made, nobody made any a, a mention about an Enbridge gas line that was going to have to be built to yeah. the plant to take over while this transition was going on. And the environmentalists were screaming and yelling as if they had no idea this was going to happen and were against it, despite it reducing emissions by 60 percent. It seems yeah. that it, it, it yeah, seems so that we're dealing in extremes rather than reality. So a lot of people get very wrapped up in this issue as if it's sort of a, a, a binary issue, meaning you're either yeah. polluting or you're not polluting at all. And the truth is, yeah. this is all about gradations of how much are you going to reduce and how much is it, is it going to cost you? And there are some places where we can make enormous reductions in emissions at relatively reasonable costs. And there are other places where even a small reduction is going to cost a lot. So you try to pick, you know, pick your spots, pick the smart places to do this. And yeah, natural gas is potentially uh, a really good transition fuel, particularly for countries like China and India that are using a lot of extremely dirty coal. Uh, it might well be helpful for those countries to actually be importing more Canadian natural gas because natural gas, it's still a carbon fuel. It still has carbon yep. emissions, but yep. it's lower than than coal. So is there a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas, considering what people like or companies like DeFasco are doing, uh, considering uh, when Europe's coming over and asking us for it or Japan or what have you? Why are we going down this road where it's just shut everything off, as a, especially when our, our, our contributions are negligible, rather than helping w with the dirtier polluters? Yeah, so there is a case for Canadian natural gas. And the, and the point that I've made in a few articles before, not in this one, is that in the last six years, the United States has gone from exporting no liquid natural gas at all to becoming the world's largest exporter of natural gas. And over that same six-year period, Canada has gone from exporting no natural gas at all to exporting no liquid natural gas at all. We have not moved. Wow. We do export natural gas to the United States, some of which itself gets converted and sent outside to the rest of the world. But um, we aren't actually capable of exporting any gas in liquid form, meaning we can only export it to the United States, which is the lowest priced market in the world along with Canada. We can't actually send it at the moment to Asia or, or to Europe where natural gas prices are a lot higher. Why are Canadians not getting this message, Tony? That is a very good question. I mean, so to give the government a little bit of credit on this, to give the, the, the Trudeau government a little bit of credit, there is a major natural gas facility being built, not liquid natural gas export facility being built in British Columbia uh, on, on the coast. There are several other small ones, smaller ones in the works. So there's stuff happening, but it's it is happening really quite slowly and there is considerable opposition you know there was a lot of talk about building a natural gas line across the country through ontario through quebec to new brunswick there was enormous political opposition quebec essentially said we don't want it we don't want it we don't want it constitutionally it would have been possible to force it through but you know uh governments like to get elected and the federal government just decided look this is not a fight that we want to have so tony um, where does the education come in here i mean i can totally understand people saying that with the information that we've been receiving for the last several years but with a little education and the rest of the world uh even agreeing with this i mean is it just not a case of this isn't about us this is about saving the planet 
So, yeah, look, I think us exporting natural gas would be beneficial in the in the short to medium term. It would actually help reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the super long term. Probably not that there you have to start to go even further and you have to move to wind and solar and other things. But yeah, in the short to medium term, the truth is if Canada exported more natural gas, it would actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions and it would also enrich us. It would make our economy wealthier. It would bring more money into the pockets of the federal government and provincial governments in Alberta and British Columbia. And there'd be more money spent and it would actually boost the Canadian economy. Yep. Is this starting to is this starting to resonate, Tony, with Canadians? So I think the Trudeau government is in an interesting position because it has lots of voters who don't want to hear this. Yeah. Um, and so it is it, it, it is always striking this delicate balance of trying to say we don't want to harm the oil and gas industry. We're not trying to undermine the oil and gas industry, but they don't want to say it too loudly. They are in a, a, a difficult position of trying to strike a balance. I don't think the balance I think the balance is with their own voters. Uh, but they're in that balance. They're in that predicament because they've been trying to sell something that isn't necessarily the right way to do it. Yeah, um, I think that. Look, I think the goal of trying to considerably reduce our carbon emissions in Canada and around the world get Canada yeah. to what's called net zero by 2050. That's the federal government's goal. That's supposed to be the global goal. That's a reasonable goal. I think we actually have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the question of sort of how do you get there. And what's in the mix? And yes, I, like you, I have some quibbles with the Trudeau government on that. Tony Keller with us, editorial page editor for the Globe and Mail. How big are Canada's carbon emissions compared to China? We are a rounding error. Tony, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Great to talk to you. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, uh, Well, after that intro, sure, why not? Hey, uh, your thoughts on the old GM of the Leafs, uh, now with Pittsburgh. Yeah, and and uh, not as GM though, which is a neat trick because remember when he had his his press conference and he says, "Hey, I'm either going to be GM in Toronto or not GM anywhere," hmm. and then he's in Pittsburgh, but he's as president of hockey or director or president of hockey operations. So technically, Kyle Dubas was telling the truth. Technically, I mean, it was you know semantics, but um, you know what? He he has an interesting. Position. I'm not sure that he has moved up in the world. I mean, there's only so many jobs, so you take them and you're happy for them. And you've got Sidney Crosby and you've got uh, Jenny Malkin and you've got Chris Letang, who are who are legends. But they're also combined the age of Methuselah, and you <laughs> have you're they're basically at the who? end. Yeah, they're basically at the end. You know who Methuselah is? Come on. Uh, he's not a hockey player. He was the oldest man ever to live, according to the Bible. 800 and something years. Anyway, um, so their team doesn't have a ton of draft picks. It doesn't have a ton of salary cap space. It's got old stars. He has got, Kyle Dubas has got a huge challenge on his hands to, to try and rebuild that. And probably you can't trade Sidney Crosby. And you can't trade of Jenny Malkin. Those guys have been there for so long and are so tied to that team. You, the, the te- I'm sure the owners have said you can't trade them. So... Figure it out. It's a it's a cartoon puzzle when all the pieces are upside down. 
You, and I understand that Sidney Crosby was a part or at least has met with uh, him and such. So I guess whenever you're bringing a change into an organization like a Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, Sidney Crosby is part of the discussion. Sure he is. Of course he is. I mean, he yeah. is he is. I mean, there's arguments about where his place in hockey history is, and it's really hard a lot of times because we gauge so much on numbers, and he played at a time when scoring was way harder than it was once upon a time. Uh, but he's he's probably, arguably, one of the top 10 players of all time in the league. Guys like that get to have a say. And you're going to go to him, and you're going to listen to him. And the last thing you want to do is, you know, just totally rock the boat and walk in there and be the bad guy from the minute you arrive. So nobody's going to go in there and unload the star player? Unless the star player wants to be unloaded? Probably not. Now, you know, what's interesting is you say, well, yeah, but Wayne Gretzky got traded. Wayne Gretzky got traded... We well, we don't forget, but I mean, not as far along in his career as as Crosby is. Crosby has been a Penguin his entire life, his entire yeah. career. Gretzky was gone by the time he was what twenty eight from the from the Oilers. Was he that young? Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, I mean, he was in his prime. I mean, today. You just think of, we couldn't even imagine with salary cap and everything, you couldn't even almost imagine a Gretzky trade happening today. It's almost impossible, it would be almost impossible to put it together, I think. But yeah, so he spent, you know, he was still very much in his prime when he went to the Kings. Sidney Crosby, if he got traded, still a valuable player, still a guy who can play a high level of hockey, but not 27-year-old Sidney Crosby anymore. Send him to Florida or to uh, Phoenix and he can help bring people in, No. (laughs) Uh, geez, I don't know. Does anyone in Arizona know who Sidney Crosby <laughs> is? Who he is? I don't know. I don't. Do they know who Austin Matthews is? You know, they might. That that was a that was a really fun debate that we had on the show just before the NHL draft happened. Because now we know where Connor Bedard, this you know generational yeah. talent, apparently is going. He's going to Chicago. They won the draft. But we had this great debate. If you were the Leafs and Arizona won the NHL lottery, would you send Austin Matthews to the Coyotes for Connor Bedard? Arizona probably wow. would. Wow. Because what you get is you don't know exactly what you get. You know what Connor, what you know what Austin Matthews is. Connor Bedard could be amazing, and you would get a ton of cap space so you could sign other players because he'd yeah, be yeah. under a rookie contract. It, it led to a great debate, which absolutely led to no answer because, boy, what a, could you imagine being a GM and the owner came to you with that proposal and said, think about it and tell me in the morning what you think? <laughs> yeah. You would lie in bed just staring at the ceiling and yeah, what? be sweating what do i do what do i do but yeah it's uh they would know austin matthews in arizona but he may be about the only one all right scott radley coming up after the six o'clock news you can read him in your hamilton spectator have a great show scott thanks again thank you thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com that's it for us thanks for listening as always we leave it to you the taxpaying customer for the last word this email comes from frank How hot is it? It's so hot that I saw a funeral procession lining up at Dairy Queen. It's so hot I saw a bird pull a worm out of the ground with an oven mitt. It's so hot. Your turn. Nighty-night, everybody. 